There it is. It's based on the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, in which he closes the epistle by saying, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. One good way to study Scripture or even memorize a verse of Scripture is after you got this verse memorized, go back <laughs> and put the negatives in. I particularly like to do it with negative verses and put the positive in. But in this case, you can put the negatives in. Finally, brothers, whatever is not true, whatever is a lie, whatever is a falsehood, a distortion, don't think about those things. Then you go right down the list. What's the opposite of noble? You might need to look it up in the dictionary. If it's not right, it's wrong. You know that. Pure, impure. All right, etc. Last week, we established this principle as a beginning point. Your, battle, your mind is a battlefield. We said there's a war going on between your ears. It goes on every day. It even goes on when you're awake and when you're asleep. And the outcome of this war will determine much about your life. A lot of things that you attribute to bad behavior, bad attitudes, bad feelings, are really just the natural product of bad ideas, bad thoughts, bad ways of looking at things. We call this lesson today... The lies we believe. Now, by the way, that's something that none of you wants to believe about yourself. But all of you do, including me. All of us have lies that we believe. And the way you can tell is bad behavior reveals them. For instance, every time you worry... <laughs> you do that occasionally, right? Every time you worry, you're believing certain lies, aren't you? God isn't big enough. God doesn't care enough. God isn't strong enough. God can't handle this. This is outside of God's league. This caught God by surprise. You're saying all those things when you're worrying, because if that isn't true, what are you worrying about? Okay, there, I just exposed one, right? In counseling, I've heard people say this at least a thousand times, I'm certain. I hate it when people lie to me. Why do people have to be so dishonest? I hear this a lot. I've heard it from some of you, so if you're not thinking that, yeah, okay. And I have to usually, after listening carefully, say, well, of all those people who have been dishonest with you, who do you suppose has lied to you the most? And then, I, I keep one just for this purpose. I reach behind me and pull out a little hand mirror, and I go like, there you go. Nobody lies to you more than you lie to you. And when you do, you set yourself up for a big fall. Dr. Chris Thurman wrote a book called The Lies We Believe. I borrowed the title for today's message. 
and he explores some. I'll mention just a few. And I tried to pick ones that I've heard some of you say. This first one, I've heard more established recovery people say this. So I think they say it a lot at AA and NA. And it's supposed to be a quote from the Bible. And it's not what the Bible says. And in context, it's just the opposite of what the Bible means. But we say it at church all the time, too. I've heard all kinds of just plain old Christians say this. Have you ever heard this? God won't give me more than I can handle. I know you think the Bible says that. I want you to know that that's absurd. First of all, we know that's a lie because does that measure up with your life? Moment by moment, God's constantly giving me things I can't handle. (laughs) Not being able to handle stuff is a way of life for me. Who am I kidding? God won't give me more than I can handle. And when was that said? A similar kind of phrase was said in 2 Corinthians. And what is Paul doing in that passage? By the way, if you've wrenched a verse of Scripture out of context to defend your lies, that's how you can usually tell it. Just ask yourself, what was that person talking about when that was said? And if you don't know, stop believing it till you go back and read the whole chapter or the whole book. Because in the case of this statement, Paul was talking about a struggle he had. He said, God gave me a thorn in the flesh. Now, he doesn't go on to tell us exactly what it is. But reading between the lines, historians have concluded it was some sort of nasty eye disorder, which did a couple of things. One, it made it hard for him to function. He had to depend on other people to get around because he couldn't see very well. He couldn't read well. One of the primary things we know Paul did was he wrote letters. You might be surprised to find out he wrote almost none of them by himself because he couldn't. He had to depend on others to write for him. Now, that's a weakness. That's a negative thing, right? And so Paul did what any good Christian would do if you had a situation like that, and there's nothing wrong with doing it. He prayed about it. He said, God, but he prayed about it this way. God, take this thing away from me. I can't serve you as well as I'd like to, but if you'll take this away, I would be so effective for you. He asked, and then he waited, and God didn't answer. He asked a second time. God still didn't answer. So he answered a third time, asked a third time, and God did answer, but he didn't give him the answer he wanted to hear. He said, no, I'm not going to do that. Why, asked Paul. Because my strength is perfected in your weakness. When you are weak, then you are strong. In other words, I can use you better with a messed up eye than if I healed it. So I'm not healing you. Now, that's not the answer to prayer he was looking for, okay? Then Paul says, so I've learned this principle. And that's when he says this, (laughs) that God will not give me (laughs) that which will destroy me, but with it will give a way of escape with every challenge, with every struggle, with every problem. Well, now he's speaking in line with what God said, isn't he? So, you may be the kind of person who goes, God won't give me more than I can handle. So then immediately you're going to conclude a couple of things. You're either going to conclude that God's having a bad day, 
okay, because he just did give me what I can't handle, or what's wrong with me? I ought to be able to handle this. When it may be your inability to handle it may be the very thing God wants to use to accomplish his purposes. That's what he told Paul. See how subtle lies can come to us? So one of the things I've learned to do is when there's something like that, a lie you believe, then restate it in a way that is true and try to reshape it. So I've done that with this one. I will say, God won't give me more than he can handle. And guess what? He won't. (laughs) And as long as I'm trusting completely in him, everything that needs to be handled will be handled because he can handle anything. But as for me, well, as the years go by walking with Christ, I think I'm less capable of doing stuff for God than I thought I was when I first started. And guess what? God seems to think that's a good thing. (laughs) So you're asking, does that feel good? Does not. Would you like it to be different? I think as a human being, I would like that to be different. Guess what? That's not going to change anything. God remains who he is and is going to do things the way he does them. And I'm either going to adjust and trust or I'm going to suffer. So there's one. I've had people tell me this. Well, pastor, I know the Bible says this, but I'm pretty certain that if I get one of these, do this, go here, marry her, nah, nah, down the line, whatever, I would be happy And don't you think God just wants me to be happy? Well, from the Bible it appears that God is way less concerned with our happiness than we are. Yes, he is concerned with his glory. And if you not being happy will glorify him more greatly, guess what? You ain't going to be happy because his purposes are greater. Now, by the way, It seems to be a consistent principle taught in Scripture, i.e. the truth, that if you do things God's way and submit to Him, you're going to be happy a way bunch more of the time than you would if you didn't. So it may be your pathway to happiness, but if you think something's going to be wrong here, I can't be doing God's will because I'm not happy. Think Jesus was happy when He was hanging on the cross? Okay, So God displayed that fact, didn't he? Okay, Happiness is not the supreme motivation, but we Americans think it is, don't we? That's right. Then our Declaration of Independence, the pursuit of happiness. Okay, Pursuit of happiness. No guarantee of being happy all the time. Some people will say this. I'll just... Follow my conscience, and everything will be okay. (laughs) The foolish thing about that is you're giving way too much credit to your conscience. Your conscience is a computer. And if a computer is badly programmed, as I'm going to talk about in a minute, it doesn't function well. You may have had that experience with your own personal hardware and software, right? Okay. (laughs) The conscience is programmed. And so if you begin to believe lies, when you practice that lie, it will initially make you happy and you may think you're doing the right thing. But conscience is not supreme in that way. Conscience must be measured 
against God's word because we are sinners. Okay? I, I, as a pastor, would be in danger of taking scripture and twisting it so that it makes me happier. And you might have done that too. Okay? When my happiness isn't the supreme value when it comes to God. Well, it's not things we think about God aren't the only lies we believe. Here's some more. A lot of people live by this lie. I have to have everybody's approval and love. And like a lot of lies, that's like a a mist in trying to get your hands on it. Impossible. Because if I like make it my life's mission to please this group over here that sits in the left-hand section, okay, chances are somebody in the right-hand section just got ticked off at me for the same very behavior, right? So then if after they leave, I quickly come over here and try to patch that up and make you happy. I can probably do that once or twice, but eventually this group's going to find out what I told this group, and this group's going to find out what I told that group, and now guess what? Neither one of them's going to like me very well. Welcome to life. If you've ever done any form of leadership, I guarantee you, you understand this concept. If you're driven by the need to make people happy, you're almost going to be certain you're going to make nobody happy in the end, and the person who's going to be the unhappiest is you. Okay? Doesn't work that way. You don't need everybody's love and approval. Not only do you not need it, you can't have it, and it doesn't work that way. I mean, we look at Jesus. I think most of you would feel like you fall a little short of his character and righteous lifestyle. And at the end of his life, he had 12 followers of the whole world. Oh, wait a minute, 11. One of them just betrayed him. Oh, wait a minute. The other 11 just ran away. (laughs) Okay. When it came to people pleasing, Jesus gets an F. Right? (laughs) Even though he gave everything for us. And that can happen. My unhappiness is somebody else's fault. Well, pastor, you've got to understand, I'm miserable and difficult and can't let go of this sin. But if you knew what I had to put up with in my house, then you'd understand. If I'd have never met this person, gone to this place, had one of those, been deprived of this, that, or the other thing, that's the reason why I am what I am. I am a product of what's happened to me. On a logical basis, the problem with that is if you look around and just observe without making judgment, you will find two people who've had very similar terrible things happen to them. And one person has been defined and destroyed by it, and the other person has risen above it and used it as a motivation to become more. You know people like that, both both categories. It's your choice. It's not dictated by how people treat you or opportunities you get or don't get. Some people think, I'm only as good as what I do. In other words, I will be defined by my performance. Foolish way of thinking, because performance can be very uneven, can it? And performance oftentimes, and 
your rewards for performance are determined on the basis of very fickle conditions, aren't they? Yeah. I am not what I do. I can talk about this as an expert because in my field this happens all the time. There are some of you who want to call me reverend, pastor, doctor, whatever. I pick your title that you want, want to call me. Okay? thing is, and without being too much of a pain in the butt about it, I try to keep you from doing that, don't I? Why is that? Because that's not who I am. That's what I do. If you don't want to be called Plumber Joe, don't call me Pastor Dave. Okay? <laughs> Pastor is what I do. Yes, it is a calling. I hope your job's a calling too. But it's a calling, but the truth is, it's still just what I do. It's not who I am. Otherwise, I would have had to wait till adulthood to get a name, right? But no, my mama gave me a name. The moment I was born, I didn't have a thing to contribute or offer or do. All I could do was make more work for adults. Then, as I grew up a little bit, then I learned how to cause even real trouble for adults. But the truth, truth is that I had very little to, little to contribute. Very little. But I was still David. Same David I am today. Okay? And so if you start defining who you are based on what you do, it's a dead end street. Because guess what? Someday you're going to retire. Someday they're going to fire you. Someday they're going to say, oh, no, no, you behave badly. We're going to take away your accreditation or whatever. You're going to stop existing then? No. So, you see, lies. Sometimes the subtlest lies are the most profound and destructive. So when it comes to these lies then, since we've established, I think, all of us have some, what happens when we get rid of them? Once you identify a lie, and it's a good idea to write it down like I wrote down some of those lies that I've heard, and reject it, say, I hereby declare, this is not the truth. At least for me, this is not what I believe. Then you have to do something. You have to replace it. <laughs> there was someone who said this. His name was George Bernard Shaw. Nature abhors a vacuum, an empty place. Whenever people do not know the truth, they will always fill it with conjecture. There is a place for truth in your mind, in your heart. Not everything fits there. When you find something that you believe is true, and you put it in the place of the lie you used to believe, it is a magic combination. One that Paul talked about in Romans 12. He said, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Stop behaving like everybody else. Basically that means. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But understand that telling yourself, I can't do that anymore, isn't the answer. The answer is found in saying, I can't think this any way anymore. Because when I think like this, I behave like this. I want this behavior to stop so this thinking 
has to be changed. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. In other words, God's will is how God designed you to operate. His good and pleasing and perfect will. When I was 19, that was me. Yes, I had hair when I was blonde, but that's supposed to be, that's my best picture that I came up with online of a computer programmer. That was my original job and vocation and study field. I was a computer programmer. Um, I'm good with numbers, a little out of the box thinking, kind of like uh, Albert Einstein, who had the similar disorder that, that I have. Uh, and I was good at doing it. I received a scholarship to college to do it, went one year to college, and then was able to actually start working in the field while I continued college. And uh, working in that field, I learned that I hated doing computer programming. And one of the little uh, exciting little events that happened in my life that helped me learn to hate computer programming so I could learn to love becoming a pastor was I was uh, 19 years old, as I said, and I was part of the uh, data processing department at Barbara Coleman. I was 19. The next youngest person in the data processing department was 33. And so they all kind of looked at me like, what is that kid doing here? And they used me like a gopher. But I also did some work there. And I wrote no programming. I did all operations because they didn't trust me. Then one day, a bunch of people got sick. And there was my opportunity. And the boss called me in. Here's the interesting thing, is there's a job for everybody. This job that I did at 19 was what helped me learn that I needed to become a pastor. At the same time, there was a man who had gone into accounting who decided he didn't like accounting and was going to go into data processing, and he took my job. Do you know who that person was? Russ Bolthouse. And he stayed in the job 35 years after I left after six months. Well, I got a chance to write a program, and so I wrote a program. It was a simple program because that's all they trust me with, and I was pretty proud of it because it was my first program. I remember laying it on the boss's desk, and going home for the day and could hardly see because I was excited to hear how impressed and proud my boss would be at my program. Programs in that day, for those of you who have well, for one thing, the computer I worked on was a Philco 5000. It was as big as this worship center. Okay? And today, your laptop could easily replace it. That's how much computers have changed. And everything that was programmed was written, handwritten into a program, and then key punch operators, remember them, used to type and put it on cards and punch holes in cards, and then we'd put a whole deck of cards and we'd feed them into the machine, and they'd put it on disks, and then we would run computer work off of it. Well, I had written this program. It was for, for payroll. So if you got paid late, you worked at Barbara Coleman in the 1970s, my fault. Okay. And the thing is, I came in in the morning, there was my program back on my desk, and written across it with a black magic marker was G-I-G-O. I assumed the G-I was for great intellect, but I couldn't figure out the G-O. Okay? 
So I went to one of my fellow workers that ridiculed me the least, and I said, yeah, you know what G-I-G-I-O is? And he, he went, ha! <laughs> I said, what's funny? It means, he said, garbage in, garbage out. Your program doesn't work. Now, I seem to recall that I made one minor step that I'd left out. We ADHD people are good at that. I left out a little step for one thing to tell another thing to do it so the program stopped at this point instead of making it all the way to the point where they printed out people's checks. And so that made the whole thing not work. Garbage in, garbage out. And so I decided to become a pastor. That's the whole story. <laughs> and, and Russ took my place and stayed in that most all of his career. Your brain is the most sophisticated computer on the face of the earth. Okay. Think about how haphazardly you program it. Right? Have you ever been sitting in front of a television program going like, I can't believe I'm wasting my time watching this, and then sat there and watched the whole thing and then watched the next episode? That's bad programming. That is G-I-G-O. Okay? Or because you didn't want to stop somebody, you just listened to a bunch of garbage coming out of somebody's mouth. When you totally had the power to stop it, you know, people say, I can't believe so-and-so. They're such a gossip. And you'll go like, well, how'd you know that? Well, I listened to them gossip. You, at that very point, you became just as much a part of the problem as they are. You do understand that, right? It's like if a tree falls in the forest and nobody's there to hear it. If a gossip's gossiping and nobody's listening, they, they stop gossiping after a while. But if you sit there just because you want to be polite and you don't want to have them to think you're a jerk and listen to it, you're part of the problem. And all the while, even though you don't believe a word of what they're saying, it's finding its place in your brain. You're never going to, sometimes we say that, unsee or unhear it. You now just heard it and saw it. It's stuck in there. It could become part of your thinking. So Paul says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true. So when he's saying whatever is true, he's not just saying whatever isn't a lie. <laughs> he's saying Whatever is not the clearest perception of reality, a view of the way things really are, needs to be rejected. The nature of truth, as the word is used in the Bible, is not just true or lie, but reality. Truth in Scripture is simply reality. In fact, Jesus used the word truth a lot, particularly in the Gospel of John. It caught John's notice. And when he does, every time you read the word truth, you can substitute the word to make it come alive to you, reality. Jesus often said, in the King James we used to memorize, verily, verily, I say unto thee. That means, now here's the truth. Here's the way things really are. Now, we have a way of looking at things, particularly the older we get, we think we know it all, and we've got hardened views on things, but the truth is, when Jesus says something and you go like, well, 
I'm sure he's right. After all, he's Jesus. But that's not the way it works, Jesus. Maybe it's because you've been gone so long. But that's not the way it works in this world. Somebody slaps you one cheek, turn them the other. I mean, that makes no sense whatsoever. No, to you it doesn't. That's because you believe the lie. How many of you ever ended a fight? Sometimes in movies they end this way, but in reality they never do by punching back. No, it only ever escalates a fight. Okay. If you ever got punched once and just stood there and let them punch you a second time, okay, you'll find out nobody likes to punch you three times without being punched back. Jesus might have been onto something. He did it right down the line. So when you hear Jesus say something, you're going like, oh, that can't be true. It's because you know that's the first little red light. I believe the lie. I got to defend myself. I got to take care of myself. I gotta well, for one thing, the moment you gave your life to Christ, you no longer needed to look out for yourself. God is looking out for you. He's got your back. You think you can do a better job of defending yourself than he can? It's in 1 John 1, 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. Self-deception, an amazing power that comes from the great brain that God gave us to reason. And how do we use it? We use it to convince ourselves to believe a lie. If you've got anything where somebody says something... And you go, well, that's not what I think. That's not what I want to think. And immediately you feel defensiveness rising up inside of you. Okay? You know that you've believed at least partially a lie. Even, by the way, if what they're saying isn't altogether true or fair or right. If it makes you feel defensive, then you know it's because on your end, you've also believed a lie. The truth doesn't need to be defended. The truth stands on its own. The truth is reality. Everything else, Republican and Democrat, they're both wacky. Okay, I'm sorry. Those are extreme views, but they're both convinced they're right, so they're not going to change. I mean, how often have you ever heard, you know, we're going to have a shift of power because there's going to be more of this party than the other party in Congress or whatever, okay? And, of course, the one group goes, now we're going to get something done, and the other group goes like, oh, no, now we're finished. And guess what happens? The first group was right, right? Nothing gets done because they spend all of their time trying to prove that the other person's wrong <laughs> instead of finding ground on which they can move ahead. If we claim to have no faults, if we claim that all of our ideas are perfect and flawless and we're always right and they're always wrong and simply because they are this, that, or the other thing, they've got to be wrong, <laughs> well, then we're just deceiving ourselves. We're lying to ourselves. The truth is not in us. So where do we get truth? Well, truth, according to the Bible, is found in God and revealed through his word. In other words, God doesn't have this problem 
We all do. <laughs> okay? He does not. He knows this because sin did it to us. So, he loves us. And he goes, well, I'm not going to tell you everything because your little brain couldn't handle it. But I'm going to tell you the truth. <laughs> I'm going to give you a picture of reality. Paul writes in Ephesians 1, You were included in Christ when you heard, notice what he calls the gospel here, the message of truth. The message of truth has two parts, doesn't it? Really bad news and incredibly good news. But both of them together are in fact the truth, right? God made you for relationship with Him, for fellowship with Him. That is awesome. You get to be God's friend. That's why He made you. He wants to share every moment of your life with you. That's awesome. That's really good news. Oh, wait, bad news. You screwed it up. Can't happen. Your sin has separated you from God, and it's a gulf that can't be bridged. Yes, you were created for that. Yes, you'll never be happy until you have that. But no, you can't have it. Not if you try really hard, you might be able to have it. No, it doesn't matter. You might as well stop trying, because no matter how hard you try, you can't get there. I'm not done. Really good news. God, once you realized that you couldn't do anything about it, did something for you that you couldn't do for yourself. He sent his son to die for you in your place that you might be reconciled to God, restored to relationship with God, brought back to the very thing you were created for. But that message of truth involves both of those ideas, doesn't it? It's not truth without both of them. If you think you're better than other people or you're God's favorite or you don't need grace as much as somebody else, <laughs> you've deceived yourself as much as anybody. If you think you've fallen too far that God's grace can't reach that far, you too are deceiving yourself. Don't limit what God can do. Paul describes the devolution, the downfall of all humanity in their sinfulness. He writes in Romans 3, what if some were unfaithful? Okay. What if it came to the place where salvation depended upon my faithfulness, my doing my part? That can happen. Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? No. You can't sin so much that God's grace can't forgive more. Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. In other words, stop just thinking, well, my grandma always said, good for your grandma. She could have been wrong. She was a sinner just like you. What does God say? Let God be true and every man 
including the pastor you're listening to right now. I don't have a complete handle on reality and truth. God does. So why don't we believe the truth? Well, truth is nullified when we choose denial as a means of avoiding responsibility. See, here's the deal. As long as I don't believe something exists, then in my mind, I'm not responsible for changing it. The minute <laughs> that I admit I'm the biggest part of the problem, then I have to make myself available to God for change. John says again in 1 John 1, 6, If we claim to have fellowship with God, and yet walk in the darkness, curious, he uses, as Scripture often does, the metaphor of light and darkness. And what are light and darkness? They are truth and deception. They are reality and distortion. If we live in the dark and pretend the light's on, we lie and do not live out the truth. You can't live out the truth while dwelling in darkness. Paul writes again in Romans, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. See, now when you read that, you're thinking certain kinds of behavior really tick God off. Okay, yeah, I mean, he is, yeah, I use the P word, I'm not going to, but he's upset. He's really mad because of people's behavior. Not what he's saying. He is so angry with mistruth because lies keep people from knowing the God of truth. It's not you he's mad at. It's the lies you believe that he hates because those lies have deprived you of the good life he wants you to have and enjoy. The wickedness of people, notice what he says, who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Bad behavior is living in contradiction to what God has said, right? That's what makes it wrong. That's what makes it evil. That's what makes it wicked. If you're like sticking a needle in your arm in order to escape this world's problems, the, wrong, the thing that's wrong with that isn't that God like hates addicts or even hates addiction. He hates the fact that you're escaping reality. And the reality is he loves you. He's got a better plan for your life. He sent his son to die for you so you could be saved from that. That's what he hates. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. That's what we call revelation. The Bible doesn't tell you everything there is to know about God. Trust me, that could not be contained in a book and it certainly couldn't be contained in your brain. It contains everything you need to know to be restored to right relationship with God. Because all truth starts right there. Here's what they did. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. Now, 
what, what do we call that behavior? When we serve created things rather than the creator. Idolatry, thank you. Yeah, that is idolatry, okay? <laughs> and that's what, so everybody who worships an idol knows really, I mean, you carved it, you built it, you made it. If you're paying attention, you know it came from me. That's a God made after my own image, not the other way around. You can't not know that if your brain's functioning, and yet here you are worshiping it. Here you are acting like this thing can make you happy. The power of truth. What truth does for us is when believed, it can change you. It can change everything about you. Because it changes entirely your reference point. I often at, at funerals will use three word pictures. Because often you're working with beginners. As far as faith issues go. And you want to take advantage of that moment to minister to them. And I will say, how do you think about death? And most of us think about death in ways that make us not want to talk about it, think about it, or ever have it happen to us, even though someday it will. Okay? But the truth is, that's the way it's presented in Scripture, because God sees death far differently than we do. God sees death in that, at last, my beloved child and I are together with nothing to separate us, that's not how you think about it, is it? See, we in fact have come to think of it as separation. No wonder we don't like it, because it separates us from people we love. What we don't realize is God's going to take care of that. It's being separated from the God that we were created to love that we should be concerned about. And so death becomes our friend. That's not an encouragement towards suicide. I'm saying, okay, Instead of living in terror of it, enjoy it. Look forward to it. We read for our scripture reading today. To the Jews who had believed Jesus, he said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Now, by the way, it's interesting that John should include that phrase because what he's saying is, these are people who believed in Jesus. Okay, So these people, I think, represent you okay we're not talking about these are people who had no time for God who didn't want to think about God who didn't consider God in any of their activities or behavior that's certainly not you and that wasn't them if you hold to my teaching you are really my disciples for then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free so what he's saying is this deception on your part has bound you, limited you, controlled you, kept from living life fully. If you ever invited the truth in, it would set you free. James writes, chapter 1, God chose to give us new birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all 
he created. Finally, the implementation of truth. Big word, sorry, it's the best one I could come up with. I left a long line there. You should have known that when you saw the really long line. Truth, when actualized, actualized, I probably could have picked a better non-psychological term there too. Actualized simply means when you act on something. I believe this, I think this, therefore I'm going to do this. Truth, when actualized, begins the process of personal transformation. We get changed from the inside out. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, by acting on the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other. He mentions it affects your relationships. It transforms your world, starting with you. Curious thing about love relationships. <clears throat> they are sometimes people say, say, is that a 50-50 relationship? All relationships are 50-50. Depending on how aggressive or assertive or how much initiative you have, you might be the first 50%, but no relationship happens without the other 50%, which is the response. And chances are, in most relationships, you're a little bit initiative and response. All relationships are that way. Imagine how different your critical key human relationships could be if you started walking in the truth, started only living by the truth. For, forget about the other person. The other person might not change an iota, which is also a Greek letter. Did you know that? Yeah. Iota, not a bit. But if you're changed, particularly in your thinking, it will change the whole environment in which you live. Well, here's this week's homework assignment. Make a list. Some of you are good at list making. Here's one to make. What are the lies that you have come to believe over the years? I listed some at the beginning. You can borrow some of those if you'd like, if some of those are yours. But chances are you have personal ones. You may even have a unique one that's not like anybody else in this room. You know, I've known people, for instance, who... Um, were in a relationship early in life that was very important to them, but it was not so important to the other person, and so they pulled the plug on it, okay? And it really, really, really hurt. And so that person simply, in their mind, said, I'm letting that happen again, okay? And they moved on with their life. Now, of course, there are urges and desires in a person that probably, all the while you're saying, I'm not going there anymore, you're still kind of pursuing it, which is a contradiction, which is what happens when there's self-deception, okay? And so then you get in a relationship, it's going pretty well, and they seem to like you, and you like them. And then all of a sudden, one day you go like, oh no, this is going to end badly, so what do you do? <laughs> Blow it up, right? You go like, good, yeah, I'm not, I kind of miss them, but you know what? At least I don't have to get hurt. What kind of a way to live is that? And yet, you're convinced, lie, that you're therefore protecting yourself. You are, in fact, causing yourself pain in order to avoid pain. Again, that's how self-deception works. So, what are the lies that you've come to believe? 
I'm not going to just keep telling you all the lies, like I'm an expert on this. Two, when, how, and why did you come to believe them? When was the first time you were aware that you thought that? Okay, and likely, if you're insightful enough, it will go back to childhood, because that's where we usually start believing most of the lies. What problems have these lies caused in your life? Are there things that have happened that you could say, you know, because this happened, I started thinking this way, so then I started doing this, which has caused the following issues for me. Fourth, what truths from God's Word could you use to replace them? If you need help with this, I could help you, but get a in today's world, Google it. What does the Bible say about this? It'll list a bunch of verses. Don't do this. Don't just read what's on the computer. Look up the verse and read the verses before and after so you're, you're thinking and knowing you're getting the right context and the like. But say, say, you know, here's a verse. I could memorize that verse. And every time I think this way, and I've come to recognize it as a lie, I can say, you know, that's what I used to believe, but that's a lie. Here's what I believe now, and quote the verse to yourself. You do that a few hundred times, <laughs> it'll be replaced. Next week, whatever is noble. Whatever the heck that means, I got one week to figure it out. No, actually no. But it's a hard, anytime you see a word like that in the English translation, that means it was really hard to translate the word from the original Greek. There isn't exactly a word in English to define it, but I'll help you. God bless you. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this challenge from your word. Thanks for challenging the lies in our hearts, our lives, and bringing us back to truth. You are the truth. You said that. The way, the truth, the life. Help us to embrace you and it, and for that truth to change our lives from the inside out.